Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. So we, uh, we have these values in our church, and one of our top values is we say we've been wearing out Bibles since 1850. You know where that comes from now, right? I mean, this church started in 1850. Um, this pastor by the name of Osgood Church Wheeler, he, was, uh, he started a church just a year or two before up in San Francisco. And then he came down by horse and buggy down through this area, which was actually known as um, Pueblo de San Jose del Guadalupe and a couple other days, something or other. I mean, it wasn't even San Jose at the time. Shows up in 1850 and with eight people, they start the First Baptist Church of, well, now we call it First Baptist Church of of San Jose, which is now called Church on the Hill. Um, But for me, I have trouble wrapping my mind around 1850. Don't you? Because, like, particularly if you're historically challenged, right? I mean, who was the president in 1850? Yeah, Millard Fillmore. Exactly. You got it wrong in the fourth grade when you took the president's test and you failed again right here, right? It's hard to remember, like, 1850. So let, let me give you a couple things that were going on, maybe around this time. It wouldn't be for another 11 years until Abraham Lincoln would become president, which, which means... The Civil War was still a decade in the future, which means that slavery was still very much a part of life. The completion of the Transcontinental Railroad would not be completed for another 19 years. When this church started on May 19th in 1850, it would take four more months before California would become an actual state. And did you know this? The capital of California at the time then was... It was San Jose, yeah, before they ruined it and moved it to Sacramento. Um, I'm just kidding. I think it's hard sometimes to wrap your mind about around what was happening then. I mean, nobody drove to the First Baptist Church of San Jose unless it was on a, a horse and buggy. How does a church make it for 173 years? There's really one answer. It's that God was faithful. It is God's faithfulness to this church. Now, I will say this. It also requires a resilient people. I mean, I don't have time to do this today. Maybe at a a big anniversary party in the years to come, we can do this. But if you actually trace the story of this church, you'll see buildings, the church building had burned down so many different times. And I don't know, maybe they finally fired the electrician. I don't know, but... I mean, what do you do when your building is burned down, resilient people rebuild? And there's just story after story about how this church faced challenges, and it's God's faithfulness. But it's a group of people like you that have been resilient to say, no, this is is my church. It's first God's church, but this is my church family, and I'm going to be resilient. And so it's interesting. We started this series called resilient church. And we're reading through Revelation chapters one through three. And in there, there's seven letters to seven different churches that Jesus gives them a message. And we thought about this series. And actually, there's, there's seven other churches right now that are preaching their way through this as well. I'm in a cohort with them. We get together, we talk about these scriptures. And so I didn't actually plan this text for this day thinking, oh, here's the anniversary celebration of our church. This is the text I want to preach. It just so lined up this way. 
But here's what I believe. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, I think this text could very well be written to Church on the Hill in 2023. And it's just as relevant as it was written to this church in Ephesus back in the first century. So I hope you have your Bibles open. We're going to read Revelation chapter 1, start there. But in these seven letters, there's kind of this pattern that happens. So Jesus, we learned this last week, Jesus gives this message to the writer John. And John passes it on to these churches. And there's a pattern that happens in the letters. Here's the pattern. I'll just give it to you right off the bat. It starts with Christ. And he starts with this powerful description of who Jesus is. And then it goes to commendation. It means this. He starts with, this is who Christ is. Then he says, this is what you've done really well as a church. And then he goes from commendation to correction. Hey, by the way, church, I know you've done these things well, but let me correct you. You have failed in this area. And after a correction, he gives them a command. This is what I want you to do differently. And after the command, he gives a consequence. Sometimes the consequence is positive. If you do this, if you change, if you follow my commands, here's the great thing that's going to happen. He also says this, though. If you don't, I'm giving you a warning as a part of this consequence. Like, this bad thing is going to happen. So there's the pattern. It's about Christ, and he gives this commendation, a correction. And he gives him a command to change, and then these consequences. And I know they all start with C. It's a gift as a pastor, you know. Church in Ephesus. It's the first of these seven letters. When John writes it, he's on this island of Patmos. And it's actually just like, why is Ephesus the first letter? As he's writing on Patmos, someone would grab that letter, he'd give it to a messenger, and he would sail 60 miles to the port of Ephesus. And when he got to that port, he would, the, the messenger would start there and he would do this loop and meet all of the seven churches. And I don't think that they just read the letter to Ephesus in Ephesus. My guess is that they probably read all seven letters to the church in Ephesus, then went to the next church and read all seven letters because he wanted to let every church know what was happening in all of the churches. Paul, um, he actually founded the church in Ephesus and then he handed it to Timothy and then Timothy, after Timothy, uh, Tychicus was there as a pastor. And then you know who was a pastor there in Ephesus? John, the guy who's writing the letter. And so think about it. How impactful would it be for Church on the Hill to get a letter from one of the previous pastors that said, you know what, Jesus gave me this message and I just, I wanted to write this message to you at Church on the Hill. I mean, if this, this kind of a letter could build you up or crush you. You have an important person in your life that if they wrote you a letter and said, you know what, I've been praying for you and God gave me this message. If it was an encouraging message, you know how built up you would be? And you know if the correction was really strong, how crushed you would be. That's this type of, of message. Um, let's go to it right away. It says this. To the angel of the church, in Ephesus. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars. And we, we knew this from last week. If you missed last week's message, you, you got to go back and listen to it. He holds the seven stars. And that word for holds means to grip. Jesus, these are the words of him, Jesus, who holds the seven stars, these angels or these messengers in his right hand. And he walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is about Jesus's authority and his power and his presence. Who's the one who walks among the churches? The lampstands of the churches, right? It's Jesus. He's with us. He's powerfully present. 
And he holds these messengers, like grips them. The Greek language, he's not just like holding them. He's gripping them. It's his authority. And remember, last week we talked about this. People who are in pain and chaos, they need to know that Jesus is still on the throne. And that's what we talked about last week. We still need this. On moments where there's challenges in front of you, where your life is falling apart, you just want to know that Jesus is still on the throne, that he's with you, walking among you, that he has our future there in his hand. And so this starts with this powerful description of Christ. And I'll just say it this way. I think what this verse starts with is that Jesus stands with his church. He stands with his church. That's how we made it as a resilient church. Not because of a resilient people, but Jesus stands with his church. Check out the next verse. He moves right into the commendation. He says this, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance, and I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. You've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. I mean, this is a great commendation. Can you imagine if Jesus spoke that to us as a church? back up. I, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. Man, you guys work. I know your perseverance. You know what that word means? It means long suffering. Church on the hill, tough people, resilient people. I mean, they're warriors. They know how to fight the fight. That, that's essentially what he's saying here. I know your deeds. And the, the, the inference is that it's good deeds. I've been watching and I see all the good things you've done with each other, to each other, in the community. And I think people, as I look out on our crowd, I see a lot of you, you've been here for decades, some of you, and you have served, and you have given, and you have sacrificed, and you've said, this is my church. Not in an unhealthy way, it's Jesus' church, right? but you're like, this is my place, this is my home. These are my people. And you've sacrificed, and, and, I, and I think... People who have persevered under a long time, they just need to know this sometimes. Hey, Jesus has seen it. He's looked at what you've done and he didn't miss it. Because you know what I hear sometimes? I hear sometimes when people have served at a church for a long time and they've made sacrifices, they just, they sometimes start, I don't know, getting a little cold hearted. Nobody ever thanks me. No one sees what I do. And then you start feeling like you're all alone. No one works as hard as I do. You know, I meet with pastors sometimes and I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. Nobody understands the life of a pastor. No, they, they don't. But I know there's some of you, you've sacrificed so much and I want you to hear this. Jesus knows and he sees it and he smiles at you. And he looks at you and he says, you're resilient. I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. And then he says this. This is gonna shock some of you. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you found them false. There were people in the church who were claiming to be not just Christians, but Christian leaders, and they showed up, they're like, hey, we're one of the apostles, not one of the 12, okay? But they're saying, we're one of the apostles, one of the leaders in the church, and we have a message for you. And they would start teaching, and the church at Ephesus would start scratching their heads and be like, that sounds off. Like, that just doesn't sound right. And they would search the scriptures and they would recall what they've been taught about what Jesus said. And they said this, no, that's not right. You don't speak for Jesus. 
Because Jesus can't change his teaching. His word was true, is true, and always will be true. And they tested these people who claimed to be Christian leaders. They found them to be false. And they're like, we ain't putting up with you. Sometimes it's, you know, when someone says something that's like spiritually off, like I get it in your community group, like, ah, that didn't sound exactly right. I'm not telling you to confront them in the middle of your community group. But when someone stands up in front and claims to be a leader, leading from God, and they start teaching something that is wrong, someone got to say, not true. And the leadership of the church needs to say, no, that's, that's wrong. This group, you know what their great gift was? This is the commendation. The church stood for Jesus to the point of being intolerant. Hmm, tolerance. There's a pretty loaded word in our culture today. Aren't we supposed to be tolerant? I mean, our culture will tell us this. You have to be tolerant of everyone and everything. Except, by the way, the culture isn't tolerant of the Christian faith. You understand that, right? Particularly in this valley. So the the culture message is you have to be tolerant of everything except something that's exclusive, that says, no, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. That's an exclusive statement. But Jesus gives them a commendation, like, hey, guys, way to go. The church stood for Jesus to the point of being intolerant. So I want you to hear this, because this is really, really important. It's not an excuse for, for Christians to be obnoxious to people. But listen to this truth. Jesus is for everyone. For God so loved the... Yeah, the one verse I can quote to you and you're all going to get it right. (laughs) For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God is for everyone. He wants everyone to come to faith in him. He wants people to choose him. God is for everyone, but he is not for everything. He doesn't give us permission to say, hey, Whatever it is you want to do, whatever you want to think, I'm just going to be, because I'm for everyone, I'm just going to be for everything. It's not true. He's intolerant towards wickedness. He's intolerant towards lies. The church must be clear about what they stand for, and occasionally the church will have to stand against something. Our culture demands tolerance, but Jesus demands intolerance at times. The, the resilient church at times is going to have to say things like, that's not true. You're going to have to say things like, that is not of God. That doesn't agree with scripture. But their strength actually costs them because what it says next in verse three is, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Jesus is not specific how they suffered, but they suffered because they stood up for Jesus. Their holy intolerance cost them something. But I think the amazing thing is that they never grew weary. I mean, the Ephesian church, they're fighters. They're tough, resilient people. There's no quit in them. They're resilient. They're gritty. But don't miss this. These tough people who didn't tolerate lies or falseness in the church, 
it actually costs them something to be fighters. And this is where the correction comes in. I want you to hear this because I think this describes the North American church today. He says this, he says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Now, some of your translations, if you're looking at your phone Bible, your digital Bible, if you're looking at paper Bible, your translation might read something like, you have forsaken your first love. And that might sound like you've forsaken your love for God. The best translation in the Greek is actually this. You have forsaken the love you had at first. What does that mean? I mean, when you first heard that there was this Jesus who came and taught, and then he died a horrible death on a cross, crucified, a brutal death, and he predicted it would happen. He not only predicted it would happen, but he said this, that death is actually going to be payment for your sins. I did it for you so that you could have the gift of forgiveness. And then three days later, he came back to life the same way he predicted. When you heard that, it grabbed your heart somehow you loved him. Thank you, God. It awakened, I mean, if you're a Christian, I don't even have to explain this to you. You get it. I mean, when you first discovered this story of Jesus, that he was real, and that for God so loved the world, for God so loved you, that he gave his son's life for you, it awakened something in you. Some of you, if you grew up without love, it was the first time in your life, you're like, I'm loved by God. And it changed you. But see, when a group of people who've had the love of their hearts awakened, and when they gather together, you know what they're good at? Loving each other. I mean, when people get together and there's like this joy and there's life, you're like, dude, I'm saved. I had an eternity apart from God and now I have an eternity with God. I am loved by God. When those people get together, the joy just, boom, it's there for a while. You see, when people, they have a love awakened in them and then they get together and then they look at a lost world and they're like, no, 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 no. I have family. I have friends who don't yet know Christ and they're going to have an eternity apart from Christ. No way. They love lost people really well. Despite the fact that lost people have things in their life that are really broken and messed up. In Ephesus, this place um, (laughs) celebrated the god Artemis and they had... uh, this, this temple that was unbelievable. Religion was so much a part of their culture, but it was a pagan religion and there was so much brokenness with it. I mean, there's temple prostitution. You're like, wow, that doesn't fit with the gospel really well. And instead of looking at them and, and going, oh, they're so dumb, they're so stupid. They thought they're so lost. See, when, when they forsook the love that they had at first, it was about their love for God, their love for each other, and the love for lost people. Somehow in the midst of that, they had forsaken that love. They had lost it. Um, when you look at their commendation, and then you look at their correction, I think this truth is very clear. Let me just give this to you. The fight they were in, eroded their love. I think the fight that they were in actually eroded their love. Um, My belief 
My belief is this. I'm going to state this um, carefully, but I think this probably describes the North American church today. Because in the last four years, Christians and churches have been in a fight. Now, forgive me, before four years, Christians have always been in a fight. A fight for people's souls, a fight for their community to exist. But let me just speak to our existence in San Jose in the last four years. The, the fight was political. And the minute that I say that, some of you are like, oh, crap. Is he going to go down that road? Not for very long. See, you're laughing because you know it's true. Because you're like, something puckered in you for just political. Ugh! The political fight has infiltrated the church and some Christians feel that they need to fight for this nation. And if other Christians don't agree with them, then there's no love for them. Watch churches in San Jose divide over, oh, we have these political beliefs and all people from other churches flock to that church now because of their political beliefs. Watch other churches. People just leave them behind because they're political beliefs. And we call it church growth. It's not. It's just transferring to a different church. The fight is also racial. What? Pastor's going after that too? (laughs) The church is, the whole nation, the whole world has been in this tension over racial inequality, and the minute that I bring it up, I'm, again, there's like, oh, wow. Now, it's interesting. The fight is not over, is racism wrong? Of course it's wrong. The fight is over, how does it exist? How is it occurring? And the fight is over this. Some of you have such strong feelings about it that you tell me you need to speak more about it. And others of you are like, you need to speak less about it. And unless I say the right thing in the right amount, in the right way, you're like, mm, no love. This is going on all over the place. We're in a fight. We're in a fight on ethics. What is right? What is okay? How much of our identity can we choose? How much has been established about our identity that God has put in us? I think we're in an ethics fight of what God says is okay and is not okay. I think we're in a government fight. And that's different than a political fight. Uh, Our government fight, let me just give you this scenario. Uh, We were the first county in the United States to go into COVID lockdown in 2020. And we were the last county in the nation to have it lifted. And the only reason it was lifted was because of a Supreme Court decision against our county. And some say, look, that's because our county is so progressive. And other people go, that's because our county is so totalitarian. We can laugh. I'm laughing at this now. It wasn't funny back then. And I don't even know if it's funny today. People fought. Christians fought over people wearing masks. Right? Some do, some don't. And there's still people today driving on the road. And I look over and they have gloves on, a mask on, a hoodie on, and they're driving by themselves in a car. And it's easy for me to almost mock that when I don't understand at all their situation. 
But we make judgments on people, whether they had a mask on or didn't, or whether they still do or they don't. And it's created this thing in the church where we have opinions about each other based off of a mask. So dumb. See, the church has been in all kinds of fights in the last four years. And my point is this, the church, Christians, because we've been involved in this fight, some of you just disengage. You're like, I'm out. I don't even want to talk about it. I don't want to deal with it. Because the truth is this, fights wear people out. Fights wear out marriages. Fights wear out relationships with parents and kids. Fights wear out relationships with believers in the same church. But not the Ephesian church. They were tough. But it cost them. And it cost them this. They were actually no longer loving. The identity of the church was wrapped up in the fight. Um, Let me ask you a question. How do you know you've grown weary? Or how do you know that the fight has eroded your love? An interesting question. Let me just give you a couple answers. You may actually be driven by anger instead of joy. Man, during COVID season, I found myself angry. I was angry at government. I was angry at sometimes you. I was just mad. I exercised more that year than three years previous. Why? To burning, burning my anger off. I needed a healthy way to deal with it. You may be driven by being right. You don't understand, Pastor. I research stuff. <laughs> I've scoured the internet. I'm right on this. The Ephesian church was too. And Jesus looked at him and said, but you don't love people. You don't even love me anymore. You just want to be right. Maybe you're driven by fear. Your fear of losing freedom, fear of losing your church, fear of losing what is right and what is true. And honestly, if I'm being totally um, transparent about this, I just think some people just love to fight. You know who you are. If you don't, just ask your family. They'll tell you. In Matthew 24, 12, Jesus made this prediction about what the world would become. He's like, hey, in the future, this is what's going to happen. Listen to this. Because of lawlessness or the wickedness of people, the love of God will grow cold. In the future, the fight will become so intense that the love of God will grow cold. Let me be super clear on this. Jesus didn't mock them because they were strong and they stood for what is right. He was telling them, I need to correct this in you. It's not that the fight was wrong. It's that the fight eroded the love that was deep in you. You need to have both. There are moments in the history of the church where we need to fight. Not be unloving towards people, but not be tolerant towards things that are offensive to God. The church needs to be intolerant when it comes to the true doctrine of who God is and who Jesus is and the way to salvation. I believe the church needs to stand up on moral issues. I believe the church needs to stand up for Jesus in our world that accepts anything and everything except the Christian faith. But the fight cannot consume our love or erode our love. Not our love for God, not our love for each other, not our love for our family, and not our love for lost people in this world. So Jesus gives them this command. Here's what I want you to do. 
Number four, consider how far you've fallen and repent and do the things you did at first. There's three steps in this. Here it is. The command was this. I want you to go back. I want you to remember these things. Number one, start by remembering when you first got saved. I'll say it that way. Remember what it was like when you discovered how much God loved you? You remember when your faith was lively? Loving people wasn't hard. It was natural. I'm going to use a weird word, almost fun. And you were actually a delight to be around. Go back and remember that moment where you got saved. Remember the gospel. Remember Christ on the cross. Remember the truth of his prediction. He wouldn't just die, that he would come back to life. And he's, I, I did that for you. And when you remember, I want you to reflect on how much God loves you. This is how you turn a life around. This is how you take a heart that's been worn out and eroded of love and you renew it. By the way, this happens in marriage too. There's been enough squabbling, enough bickering that love has grown cold. Then go back and remember why you got married. You didn't get married because you were a fool. You got married because you were in love. And you got to go back. Well, you might have been a fool and in love. Let me make, be straight. And go back and think about that. And, and then it says this, I want you to turn away from something. The, the, the word repentance means this. I want you, you're heading this direction. Turn around. You're walking away from something. Whatever it is that's eroding your love, stop it. Walk away from it. Sometimes, I'll be honest, sometimes I think it is walking away from a fight. Guys, I've been pastoring 30 years I mean, since I was, well, 13, because I'm not that old. I, I've been doing ministry for 30 years. Can I just tell you, my soul goes through these cycles where my love grows cold. It grows cold for God because every time I open this book, I'm like, oh, how does that preach and well, the message I got to prepare? And I'm so busy trying to stand for Jesus. That I sometimes forget that I need to sit with him. That he stands with me before I ever stand for him. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, I guarantee you've gone through this where your heart just grows cold. And he says this, here's what I want you to do. I want you to first remember, and then I want you to walk away from. And there's been moments where I've had to put down messages, set aside ministry, put the to-do list away, and I'll be honest, there's some pastors that they're like, I, I just can't do ministry for a year, two years. They may never come back to the ministry because their hearts are just grown cold. I'll tell you, the number one thing that we have to do as pastors, and I think you as ministers of the gospel, tend the flame inside your soul. Because if it's getting eroded, if it's getting squelched, then whatever you do for God is worthless. See, no one wants joyless obedience. I know it says, if you love God, you will keep his commands, right? Jesus said that in John 14. If you love God, you'll keep his commands. So you've been keeping his commands and keeping his commands and keeping his commands, but you forgot. It's if you love God. <laughs> no one wants joyless obedience. Ask your spouse. 
They don't want you to do all the right things and have no joy and love there. Your kids, like, they don't want that either, right? I mean, joyless obedience, that's just the older son of the father in the prodigal son story, right? That guy was totally obedient, did all the right things, but he hated his dad. No parent wants that. Listen, you know what parents want more than obedience? They want relationship with you. If you're a son, if you're a daughter, hear this. They want relationship with you. God's the same way. It's because we are built in the image of God for relationship. God wants a relationship of love, not joyless obedience. And then you have to turn to something, the third thing. You got to turn to habits that are going to fill your heart with love. Go back and start doing the things you used to do. If it's your marriage that's grown cold, by the way, this message is not about marriage, but I'll just say this. Then go back and reflect. Turn away from the things that you need to turn away from, which might be your golf game. Let's be practical. And start doing the things you used to do. I think an unhealthy heart, if you choose the right habits, can be reawakened again. Here's the consequence. I got to fly through this really fast. Um, Verse five, halfway through, it says, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Remember, the lampstand, it represents the church. But if you have, but you have this in your favor, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Remove your lampstand. What does that mean? Commentators are divided over it. Let me give you some examples. Some say it means total destruction of the church. If our heart as a community of God's people grows cold towards God, God will wipe church on the hill off the face of the earth. That's what some people believe about that. Others say it's Jesus's blessing on the church. Like, listen, if the lampstand represents Jesus' church, he doesn't mean you're going to cease to exist. He's like, I'm just going to take my designation of what it means to be a a church. I'm going to take it away from you. You might still gather here on the hill, but you ain't going to be Jesus's church. He's removing his blessing. By the way, what's a lampstand in the gospels represent? You put a light on it so that everybody can see. So third thing is commentators say this. It might be the fact that he actually removes your witness. No one's going to come to faith in Christ at this church if you're not loving. No one's getting baptized at this church. God is not going to draw people to himself through this community because you're too unloving. You fought the good fight, stayed true to to him, but you don't love him and you don't love each other. He's like, "Mm -mm, then nobody coming to faith here anymore because why would I want to put people in a sick family? I want to say this to you. And I think this is fitting for 173rd anniversary. I think most churches fear that they will cease to exist. I mean, listen, how long have you been here? What have you sacrificed to keep this church family together here? Some of you, you fear that maybe one day this church will cease to exist. I think God has a greater fear. God's greater concern is that churches continue to meet, but they aren't actually his church. You see, it can look like people are gathering. You could have thousands of people gather here on the hill, but the greatest concern is not that we cease to meet. The greatest concern is this, is that our love gets eroded, grows cold, and we stop actually being God's church. And then he gives them this 
wonderful thing. He says, hey, I know you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. It's another good commendation. And notice he doesn't say, hey, you hate the Nicolaitans. He doesn't hate the people. God didn't hate the Nicolaitans, and the church didn't hate the Nicolaitans. They just hated their deeds. By the way, I don't have any time to describe what the Nicolaitans are. I'm out of time. But I'll actually come back to this in a couple weeks. Here's the blessing. Whoever has ears to hear, let the Spirit say to the churches what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who's victorious. What does that mean? Not that you fought the good fight. They've already fought the good fight. To the one who rekindles love for God, love for each other, and love for the lost. To the one who's victorious, I will give the right to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's actually a reference to Genesis, the beginning opening chapters, chapters where God puts people in the paradise of God. And it's a reference to the final two chapters of the book of Revelation, where the story ends for God's people in the paradise of God. That's your future. That's your destiny. If you love God, So let me just give you this final statement so that you'll remember this. We must stand with Jesus more than we stand for Jesus. I'm not saying you shouldn't stand up for Jesus and fight some kind of fight, that you should stand up for Jesus in our culture. I'm not saying you should just tolerate everything. But we have to stand with Jesus more than we stand for Jesus. Listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding glong or clanging cymbal. What he means is this. Man, if I got up as a pastor and I preached the bomb message, people like coming to Christ, but if I don't love any of them, I'm just noise. If I have the gift of prophecy, That means all kinds of wisdom. Like, you know what's happening in the world today. God's voice speaks through you and you can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have a faith that can move mountains, if I have a faith that God could use to to do miracles, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. First and the greatest commandment is this, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. At 173 year anniversary, I don't care how long you've been coming to this church, my question is the same. Do you love him? Not do you joylessly obey him, do you love him? Because you understand that he first loved And when we gather together, do we love each other well? You might not even know each other. That means don't race for your car after service. Get to know each other. And do you love lost people? We have to stand with Jesus more than we stand for Jesus. Jesus wants his church to stand with him more than he actually needs you to stand for him. And so if we're going to change, here's what he said. I want you to remember what it was like. I want you to turn away from something into something. And so here's how we're going to end our service. When, um, when we talk about remembering, Jesus actually gave us symbols of remembering. You know what they are, right? They're bread and wine. Jesus said, I want you to do this. You would take this bread. This represents my body that was broken for you on the cross. Don't eat it without reflecting on what it cost me. The bread is supposed to take us back to the cross. And if the cross doesn't awaken your soul to the sacrifice that God would make giving his son's life for you, something is deeply broken in you.
May God awaken it today. And so he says, eat and do this remembrance of me. And then he says this, I want you to take this cup and in his day, wine, this church juice, all right? (laughs) And I want you to drink because this is the symbol of my blood, of this covenant that I made with you. And so for 2,000 years, Christians have been doing this. They've been eating bread and drinking wine or juice so that they wouldn't forget. And they would do exactly what he's saying. Go back and remember This is the core of the gospel. Jesus has sacrificed so that we could be forgiven and have a new life in him. So this is how we're going to end our service. I'm going to pray in just a moment. And at the tables around the room, including the balcony, there are little cups there. One side is bread. The other is juice. And I'm going to invite you to receive these elements. And as you do, remember what it is that cost him. And as you're praying and remembering, he might call you to leave something behind that is eroding your love for him. And he might call you to start doing something that will build a healthy love for him. Let me pause and just pray. Let's close our eyes for just a moment. For our communion, that's what we call it when we take the bread and the cup, Um, The only prerequisite is this, is that you're a follower of Jesus. You've accepted his gift of forgiveness. And so this might be your first day with us at our church. And uh, I will tell you this, you're welcome to the tables. Um, Everybody will get up and and just walk and go to a table in just a minute to receive that. And if you're a Christian, you're welcome to. If you're not a Christian, let this pass. But as you're there, I would invite you to talk to God. Maybe today's the day that you need to receive his gift of forgiveness and eternal life. And would you do that? So God, uh, we just start with this. God, we confess that our love has eroded to some degree. God, would you awaken our hearts today to this gift you gave us 2,000 years ago? Would you awaken our hearts to the fact that we need you every day? That this church isn't here because we're so strong and resilient, but We're still here because of your faithfulness and your grace and your mercy on us. And all of that is represented by this bread and by this juice. God, your forgiveness is right there, always ready and available to us. May we grab onto that today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.